Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 17, Texas versus the United States. This is an opinion you might have heard about. It was just filed this past week on December 14, 2018. Out of federal court, out of the Northern District of Texas, where a federal district judge ruled that the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, is unconstitutional. How could that be, you might ask? Didn't the Supreme Court say Obamacare was cool several years ago? They did. But something changed, and we'll get into that in a second. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on Twitter at BlueCarp and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. I'd love to hear from you. Here we go. Let's get into this thing. The case is captioned, Texas versus the United States of America. This one is 55 pages, again, in a PDF format. And I'll remind you that when I'm discussing a case, I've read it. And it should be obvious, right? Nobody should be discussing anything they haven't actually at least read, right? But far too often, and we've talked about this, you'll see someone on the news, radio, or social media with some passionate opinion about a case they haven't read. Don't be that guy. If you haven't read it, you shouldn't have an opinion. Or at least preface your opinion by saying, I haven't read it, but I understand from others on TV and on the radio that it's bad, or good, or whatever. But please, don't. Pretend that you know what a case is about if you haven't read it. Far too many people do it. Don't be that guy. All right, now, this case, Federal District Court. Now, Federal District Courts are just one person. I mean, there's a bunch of courts with a bunch of judges, but one judge will hear a case. And in this particular case, this judge's name is Reed O'Connor. And as far as I can tell, he's not in your relation to the former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. But Judge O'Connor said Obamacare was unconstitutional. Now, the Trump administration has said it's not going to attempt to enforce this decision out of the Northern District of Texas until it has been heard by a higher court. And for it to have any national authority, it's going to have to go to the Supreme Court. And in federal court cases, decisions like this from district court judges go to the Court of Appeals. Now, Texas is located in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which also includes Louisiana and Mississippi, in addition to Texas. And actually, the court building is located in New Orleans, and I got to argue in that courthouse in law school when my moot court team participated in a competition hosted by Tulane Law School, which of course is in New Orleans. And it was held to coincide with Mardi Gras. So that was cool. And we actually came in third. I know we came in third and I think it was out of 16 schools. I don't think it was more than that, but it was at least 16 schools. I'm pretty sure. So that wasn't too shabby. My other two team members and myself, when we were trying to decide where we wanted to go for a moot court competition, were shuffling through brochures and the like. And when we came across the Tulane Mardi Gras Moot Court Invitational, for obvious reasons, we stopped our search. The good folks at Tulane, smart enough to schedule that competition to coincide with Mardi Gras. They put on an excellent competition. It was a lot of fun. And they had a welcoming reception for all the teams at Pat O'Brien's the night before the competition started. But I digress. I'm a fan of New Orleans, and it ties in because that's where the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is. And if the Federal Circuit Court for the Fifth Circuit hears it, that will be a three-judge panel. Depending on what that panel does, one of the sides is going to appeal it, most likely. They can appeal to the entire Fifth Circuit, which I didn't check, is nine or ten judges, and then all of them will hear it. If the three-judge panel, let's say it was two to one or three to nothing, because those are the only two options, the remaining judges will then get to hear it also, 
and all the judges will be will get an opportunity to vote. So that could change it. They don't have to do the en banc, but that's an option. And you can ask for en banc, and they can say, no, we don't want to hear it en banc. So either the three-judge panel decision will stand, or an en banc decision will be issued. So whatever happens in the circuit court, then the next step is the U.S. Supreme Court. This one may well end up there, but you never actually know. But if it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously, then it has national pertinence. Some other federal court facts that might be helpful. There are 13 appellate courts that sit below the U.S. Supreme Court. These are the courts of appeals, the circuit courts. There are 94 federal judicial districts. So every state has at least one judicial district. Like Wyoming is just one judicial district. Colorado is just one judicial district. But North Carolina, where I used to practice, is three judicial districts, federal judicial districts. It's divided into the Eastern District, the Middle District, and the Western District of North Carolina. So the 94 federal judicial districts organized into the 12 regional circuits, each of which has its own court of appeals, the appellate court's task is to rule on appeals from the district courts. The appellate courts have to hear every appeal. And that's I only mention that because the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear any appeal. I mean, there's like one or two things, very small minority of what they have to do, they constitutionally have to hear. But the vast majority of, of what the U.S. Supreme Court hears is something that they've decided they want to hear. Because there'll be an ungodly amount of people asking the Supreme Court to hear their case, and only a small percentage of them actually get selected to be heard. This is one of them that might well make it through that process. Now, there's also a Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. It's got nationwide jurisdiction. It, he it hears appeals in specialized cases involving, for example, patent laws and cases that come out of the U.S. Court of International Trade to the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Remember, Congress can create all of the federal courts beneath the U.S. Supreme Court. Only the U.S. Supreme Court is mentioned in the Constitution, but it's mentioned that the Congress can make other inferior courts and this is what they've done. That's what I'm talking about. So that's the basic structure of the federal court. A lot of people are interested in that. Judge Reed O'Connor. What do we know about him? We know he's born in Texas, Houston, Texas. He got a bachelor of science degree from the University of Houston in 1986. And he got his law degree from South Texas College of Law in 89. He was in private practice in Texas from law school until 94. He was an assistant district attorney with the Tarrant County DA's office in Fort Worth from 94 to 98. He was then an assistant United States attorney for the Northern District of Texas from 98 to 2007. And while he was doing that from 2003 to 7, he worked on the United States Senate Committee on the Judiciary. And in 2007 is when he was appointed to the federal bench by George II, or as his friends call him, W. And an aside here, no, it was a couple weeks ago, I guess Trump made some tweet about Obama judges and the popular media was appalled. I, even Chief Justice John Roberts said something about it. He said, we're not Obama judges or whatever, we're just judges. And the popular media was like, yeah, John Roberts, you're right. But when this opinion came out, when Judge O'Connor's decision came out saying that Obamacare was unconstitutional, what did the popular media immediately refer to him as? A Bush judge. Consistency is not something the popular media is known for. Hypocrisy is basically one of the things they're known for. All right, so who are the parties? You know, it's Texas versus the United States. And you know, I think it's important to discuss who the parties are. Many of them have important stories that shed light on the decision, give us important context, like we talked about in Plessy versus Ferguson, Homer Plessy, who he was, Brown versus Board of Education, who Oliver Brown was. You know, who are these people that have their names on these cases? This case provides no such opportunity. Alas, it's merely Texas versus the United States with California listed with a bunch of other intervener defendants. So other states and parties were involved, but Texas was first in the plaintiff list. California's first on the intervener's list. But when we refer to it, we don't include them in the name. It's just Texas versus the U.S. So the plaintiffs, in addition to Texas, were Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Carolina, South Dakota, 
Tennessee, Texas, like we said, Utah, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Maine. So these are the states that filed a suit to throw out Obamacare. The defendants are the United States of America. They're on the name of the case, like Texas versus U.S. Also, the United States Department of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar in his capacity as Secretary of Health and Human Services Department, and the United States Internal Revenue Service, and David J. I guess you say it, Cotter, I'm not sure, K-A-U-T-T-E-R, in his official capacities, Acting Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. The intervener defendants. Now, the reason these states asked to become involved, they asked to intervene, is because they didn't think the Trump administration was going to defend Obamacare enough. So these states said, no, we really want to defend it. And those states are California, they're the lead intervener, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Kentucky, Massachusetts, do you see a pattern, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington, and D.C., the District of Columbia. So the issue, the plaintiff states, led by Texas, argued that since the Supreme Court upheld Obamacare in that case, that case was specifically based on the constitutional authority Congress has to tax, and that Congress has since eliminated that tax the entire program, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is no longer constitutionally authorized and therefore unconstitutional, right? That's the argument. That's what the plaintiffs are saying. And that makes a lot of sense. It's a pretty straightforward argument. No sophistry involved, no gimmicks. Judge O'Connor agreed with the plaintiffs in his 55-page opinion. So let's go over how he came to that conclusion. O'Connor opens his, that 55-page opinion like this, first lines. The United States healthcare system touches millions of lives in a daily and deeply personal way. Health insurance policy is therefore a politically charged affair, inflaming emotions and testing civility. But Article Three courts, the Supreme Court has confirmed, are not tasked with, nor are they suited to, policymaking. All right, that's the first two lines. Amen to that, Judge O'Connor. Now, he mentions Article Three judges. Now, what's he talking about? Because a lot of people don't know. Well, Article Three courts are the ones described in Article Three of the United States Constitution. That doesn't include bankruptcy judges or magistrate judges and certainly not administrative law judges. They are not Article Three judges. They're Article One judges. Article One judges don't have the same protections as Article Three judges. They don't have life tenure. Their salaries may be reduced by Congress at any time. And examples of Article One courts, United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, they have their own kind of judicial system. United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, same idea. The United States Tax Court, the United States Court of Federal Claims, the bankruptcy courts, and also the territorial courts in the Northern Mariana Islands, Guam, and the Virgin Islands. Now, I clerk for a federal magistrate judge, and in federal court, that is the title, not just magistrate. State and municipal judges or judicial officials might be magistrates. If you're ever in federal court in front of a magistrate judge, Make sure you refer to them as judge and their official title is magistrate judge. Some of them get really picky about that. My guy was pretty laid back, but some of them will correct you quickly and some harshly if you just call them a magistrate. They're magistrate judges. The magistrate is an indication of their jurisdiction or the type of cases they can hear. And magistrate judges do work for Article Three judges. Basically, Article Three judges in a particular federal district and the district judges who are appointed for life, Article Three judges, can hire magistrate judges to help them do things. Kind of like discovery issues in civil cases. Somebody's arguing about what information they have to turn over. They can let magistrate judges make rulings on those things. Federal judges, district judges don't want to be bothered by discovery issues, mostly, generally speaking. And in civil cases, parties can agree to magistrate judge jurisdiction because federal court judges, district judges, have to have their docket give preference to criminal cases because they're speedy trial considerations. Civil court, you don't have those considerations. So if there's any conflicts, the criminal cases 
will prevail. So you might get your civil case bumped out further and further and further. But if you agree to a magistrate judge jurisdiction, you can hear it a lot quicker. And if you do that, then the magistrate judge is going to have the same authority as a district court judge for that case. So that's just more technical background stuff. Back to O'Connor's decision, he said, after that great start. He says, sometimes a court must determine whether the Constitution grants Congress the power it asserts and what results if it does not. If a party shows that a policymaker exceeded the authority granted it by the Constitution, the fruit of that unauthorized action cannot stand. He's absolutely right, and this is basic stuff that hardly anybody understands. Most people, again, on TV, on the radio, social media, wherever, newspapers, to the extent they still exist, most people equate policy they like with something being constitutional and vice versa. That's not what constitutional means. That's not how it works. Like the New York Times and some other outlets, I saw this in an actual article from the Times, said, if this decision stands, Judge O'Connor's decision out of Texas, they said millions will lose health care, as if that has anything to do with its constitutionality. Now, like we've already talked about, courts don't make policy. They only can tell us if a policymaker, Congress, has exceeded its constitutional authority. So the fact that it's a bad policy or a good policy is irrelevant. Judges don't decide policy. They're not supposed to decide policy. And we've discussed how oftentimes they have, but that's not the idea behind the Constitution or how our entire federal government is set up. But these people and a lot of elected Congress people or people, elected officials in general, they don't care about the Constitution. L literally, they do not care about it. They care about the institution of policy, keeping that policy, and the Constitution can be damned. We, and we can't let them get away with that. Whenever someone argues for a federal program, ask them what part of the Constitution authorizes that program. At least make them think about it. Our elected officials surely don't. But we have to keep flaming that brush fire. Don't let them get away with it. And O'Connor does a good job of laying out that general issue. Judges are asked and tasked with determining if what Congress does is authorized by the Constitution. Goes back to Marbury v. Madison, which, which we've talked about. And I know there's some issues with that, but that's where it comes from. O'Connor continues. Here, in this case... The plaintiffs, Texas and the other states, allege that following passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, all right, that's the tax cut package that the Republican Congress passed and Trump signed during his the first two years of his presidency when they controlled everything. So following passage of that act, the individual mandate in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the ACA, Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Following the tax cut, Obamacare is unconstitutional. That's the argument. They say it is no longer fairly readable as an exercise of Congress's tax power and continues to be an unsustainable program under the Interstate Commerce Clause. They further urge that, if they are correct, the balance of the ACA, Obamacare, is untenable as inseverable from the invalid mandate. All right, let me try to restate that. Three things. In 2017, Congress said there's no longer any tax if you don't have health insurance. So if you don't comply with the individual mandate, there's not going to be a tax. You still have the individual mandate, just no tax. The Commerce Clause still doesn't authorize it, Obamacare, because the Supreme Court rejected that argument when they heard about it. That was in the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, versus Sebelius. And Sebelius at the time was the acting head of the Department of Health and Human Services. So that's why her name was on it. There's not a tax anymore. The plaintiffs argue that because there's not a tax anymore, Obamacare is no longer auth authorized under the taxing power. The Commerce Clause still doesn't authorize it. Nothing has changed about that. And the Supreme Court made that ruling when they ruled that Obamacare was okay under the taxing power. And three, if the individual mandate that you have to have insurance, health insurance, no longer triggers that tax, which it does not, the entire program must fall because the whole thing is dependent on the individual mandate, which still exists, but it no longer triggers the tax. So therefore, the taxing power, as one of the enumerated powers of Congress, no longer gives authorization for the entire statute, for the entire program. 
That's the argument. And O'Connor agrees with that. But let's get into more detail as we go along. And I'll note that Judge O'Connor never says Obamacare. I'm going to say it. He never says it. He says ACA after he mentions the Affordable Care Act because he's a federal judge and he's got to be serious. I can say Obamacare. Most people say Obamacare. Even people that love Obamacare call it Obamacare now. All right, so we know the famous case where the Republican-nominated Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts, saved Obamacare, and that's called NFIB, as we talked about, v. Sebelius. Kathleen Sebelius was the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services back then for Obama. Now, in this current case, like I said, just released a week ago, Judge O'Connor explains what has happened. Three federal things are important. First, the passing of Obamacare. ACA, which became effective in 2010. So what does it say? We have to look at that. Second, the Supreme Court decided that NFIB case in 2012. What did the Supreme Court say about it? And third, just in 2017, Congress, among other things, eliminated the tax in Obamacare for non-compliance with the individual mandate. Those all are important things. They all tie together. You can't ignore any of it. You have to make them, you have to reconcile them all. Now in 2018, we have this case, which is now on its way through the federal court to a higher court. So it kind of works through these three events. Obamacare passes, Supreme Court rules on it, and now the tax has been repealed. He lays out this conclusion, quoting, The Supreme Court held that the individual mandate was unconstitutional under the Interstate Commerce Clause, but could be fairly read as an exercise of Congress' tax power because it triggered a tax. The 2017 legislation by Congress eliminated that tax. The Supreme Court's reasoning in NFIB, buttressed by other binding precedent and plain text, thus compels the conclusion that the individual mandate may, lo- may no longer be upheld under the tax power because it doesn't the tax is no longer there. And because the individual mandate continues to mandate the purchase of health insurance, it remains unsustainable under the Interstate Commerce Clause, as the Supreme Court already held. Finally, Congress stated many times unequivocally through enacted text signed by the president that the individual mandate is essential, in quotes, to the ACA. And this, essentially, the ACA's text makes clear means the mandate must work together with the other provisions for the act to function as intended. All nine justices to review the ACA in the NFIB case acknowledge this text and Congress's manifest intent to establish the individual mandate as the ACA's quote-unquote essential provision. The current and previous administrations have recognized that too because rewriting the ACA without its essential feature is beyond the power of an Article III court. The court thus adheres to Congress's textually expressed intent and binding Supreme Court precedent to find the individual mandate is inseverable from the ACA's remaining provisions. So what he's saying here is the tax is gone. Obamacare was authorized by the taxing power. Therefore, it's no longer authorized. And that taxing power, the tax that kicked in, if you did not have health care, if you did not comply with the individual mandate to have health care insurance policy, that part of Obamacare was deemed essential to the entire thing. So because of that, the whole thing must fail because the individual mandate is no longer constitutionally authorized by the taxing power and has never been authorized by the Commerce Clause power, as the Supreme Court said earlier. This is not an out-of-left-field decision. It's perfectly reasonable, even if it eventually is not upheld because politics get involved. It's perfectly reasonable. I agree with this decision. It makes sense to me. It makes clear sense, as far as I'm concerned. But now's a good time to say this. I, I used to have faith that most disagreements were in good faith. People just had different opinions about what was right and wrong. I have long since disabused myself of that notion. People decrying this opinion that I've heard on the radio or seen on TV or read about wherever 
haven't read it. They just know they want Obamacare. They just know they like Obamacare. And that's what passes for their constitutional analysis. Nothing else matters to them, not the Constitution, not the separation of powers, not justice, not morality, not federalism. Only thing that matters to them is partisanship and the policy they like. Screw the Constitution if it gets in the way. They could care less. This particular time, it's the progressives doing it, but the so-called conservatives do it too. Philosophical notions of truth and beauty are no longer goals, just power. And that is truly obscene. We have to point this out when we see it. Because without any restrictions on what the federal government can do, it can do anything. And just because your team's in power doesn't mean it's a good idea. Now, we'll say that there are commentators out there who are honest progressives. Alan Dershowitz, for one. Glenn Greenwald for The Intercept. He's the guy who helped out Snowden get some of his information out. I give them props for their consistency. I don't agree with them on a lot of issues, but they are consistent. They're not Democratic lapdogs like most of these progressives you see on the news or here on the radio or that hold elected office. All right, a few more notable lines from O'Connor's opinion that I think shed light on it and are important. In discussing the legislative debate, the arguments for Obamacare, he goes over all the different aspects of the 900-plus pages of the legislation and says, Congress pursued these goals through a carefully balanced restructuring of the nation's health insurance ecosystem. Now, I can only assume that he has his tongue in cheek, because that's the only way I can read that. I don't think anyone could sincerely discuss the carefully balanced restructuring of the healthcare health insurance ecosystem. I guess that balancing included bribes to senators for yes votes. If you recall, millions of dollars in pork was doled out to Democratic senators to get the votes to make it pass. Yeah, that's the careful consideration, careful balancing, right? Judge O'Connor goes on in depth on all the different components of the ACA. The ACA, he says, also implemented an employer mandate and employer responsibility assessment. These provisions require employers with at least 50 full-time employees to pay the federal government a penalty if they fail to provide their employees with ACA-compliant health plan options. I just mentioned this part of the opinion when he's describing the 900-plus page bill to point out how central planning always will screw something up due to unintended consequences. Some of those unintended consequences are easy to see. Some of them are really hard to foresee, but they'll always be there. But this, this 50 full-time employee requirement is easy to see. People saw it before it was passed. People pointed this out. What happened? Businesses didn't hire that 50th employee or they created a different corporate structure so that they never had more than 49 employees. That's bad enough. But the full-time part, that if you have 50 full-time employees, you're subject to this tax. Anybody with half a brain could foresee that workers were not going to be allowed to work full-time. If they're not working full-time, if you don't have 50 full-time employees, you're not subject to this tax. What's a business going to do? He's going to limit your hours so you don't qualify for full-time. Only an idiot would not see that was what was going to happen regarding full-time employment and how that hurt working-class people. And since only an idiot could foresee it, it makes sense that Congress passed it. O'Connor goes on. He points out that the ACA also lays out hundreds of minor provisions spanning the Act's 900-plus pages of legislative text that complement the above-mentioned major provisions and others, which, of course, None of the senators read on such short notice before they voted on it. We all know Nancy Pelosi's famous quote. We, they had to pass it to see what was in it. And in that tradition, I guess it makes sense. Few if any of the politicians condemning this opinion have read it either. Their dishonesty, their lack of intellectual curiosity is obscene. So a lot of Democratic politicians heard about this opinion in the afternoon. They dismissed it out of hand as absurd. That was their instinct. Their instinct wasn't to wonder what the judge said. 
It wasn't to wonder what the reasoning was. What the actual opinion said is irrelevant to those court jesters. And I shouldn't call them court jesters because Shakespeare's jesters were usually wise. They made good points. They saw things other people didn't see. And most politicians aren't wise. So instead of the worthy job of a Shakespearean court fool, they're more like village idiots. So after Obamacare passed, a bunch of lawsuits were filed. The NFIB case was one of them, and it's the one that made it to the Supreme Court. And it, quote, challenged Obamacare's individual mandate and Medicaid expansion as exceeding Congress's enumerated powers. That's kind of a quaint notion, isn't it? Enumerated powers? What? Enumerated powers? What? Congress can do whatever it wants, at least if you ask most of the elected politicians, not just Democrats either. Pelosi again, she was asked what constitutional authority Congress had to pass Obamacare, and she just laughed like it was the most ridiculous question she'd ever heard. She didn't even pretend that constitutional authority mattered. She didn't even throw out the general welfare cause or the commerce clause. It didn't matter to her. I dare say it didn't matter to any of its supporters. Congress did what it wanted to do, and then they let the lawyers make up some constitutional justification for it later, which is what we've got now. O'Connor continues in his opinion. He said, The Supreme Court held the individual mandate was beyond Congress's interstate commerce power, but salvageable under its tax power. Absolutely true statement. That's what, Congress, or that's what the Supreme Court did. Now, during the debate, before it was passed, and while trying to sell it to the public, the Obama administration and Pelosi and the like, they were loudly promising that the ACA was not a tax. It merely required a penalty for those who did not comply. Then, once it's passed and there's this lawsuit, what do the government lawyers do? As soon as it's challenged in court, they start arguing it is a tax. Now that it's passed, now we can tell you the truth. They argued it was a tax. They also argued it was the Commerce Clause, which was their main argument. But they said, uh, it's also a tax, which, of course, is ultimately what Chief Justice John Roberts and the majority decided. And this is just like in Fleming v. Nestor, the, the, the Social Security case we talked about. In that case, FDR and the New Deal Congress sold Social Security as a pension with a trust fund that you pay into with guaranteed benefits. Then, as soon as that was challenged in the courts, the government lawyers denied all of that and argued, hey, it's just like any other payroll tax. The money just goes into the general fund, and you've got no right to any of it, which is what the court held. So be aware of this. When Congress is selling you something, and President is selling you something, realize there's at least a reasonable chance they're selling you a load of crap. Because they've historically done it. These are just two major examples. And I almost wish there was a way for the Supreme Court to take that lying into consideration. Like, if legislation was sold to the public as a commerce clause power, then the Supreme Court should reject the taxing clause power as an argument. They said, that's not what you argued when you sold this thing. Now, you're going to rely on it now when you specifically didn't in and you said it wasn't a tax. Now you're going to say it's a tax. They don't do that. And I'm not sure how that would work as a practical matter, but the idea certainly appeals to me. All right, Judge O'Connor in Texas continues on. He mentions, quote, Chief Justice Roberts concluded the individual mandate is not a valid exercise of Congress's power under the Interstate Commerce Clause. So they rejected the Obama administration's main argument, at least as it was sold. O'Connor goes on. The government argued the individual mandate could be sustained under the Interstate Commerce Clause because individual decisions to not buy health insurance collectively have a substantial and dilatorious effect on interstate commerce. Okay, that argument is utter bollocks and it just drives me crazy that educated people don't have the honesty to be ashamed to utter that nonsense. It comes from Wickard v. Filburn, another case we talked about. Remember, that's where the New Deal court said that the power to regulate interstate commerce, as listed as one of the enumerated powers in the Constitution, included the power to regulate activity that was neither interstate nor commerce. So Obama made the argument that doing nothing, not buying health insurance, affected interstate commerce. It's just obscene. But many people thought the court would buy that argument. That's what the whole discussion was going into it. Would it be upheld? 
as an exercise of the Commerce Clause power, even though what they're regulating is someone not doing something. But they didn't. Chief Justice Roberts didn't go that far. He didn't put another nail in the coffin of federalism and enumerated powers. He went to the tax power to save it. And O'Connor continues, the Chief Justice disagreed and held the Interstate Commerce Clause authorized regulating activity, not inactivity. He Chief Justice Roberts warned the government's theory would extend the sphere of Congress activity and draw all power into its impetuous vortex. It's quoting the Federalist number 48 there, James Madison. The framers gave Congress the power to regulate commerce, Chief Justice reasoned, not to compel it. Okay, you can regulate commerce, you cannot compel it. Accordingly, continuing on in O'Connor's opinion, a majority of the Supreme Court found the individual mandate unconstitutional under the Interstate Commerce Clause. But, Chief Justice Roberts saved Obamacare, the ACA anyway. Back to O'Connor's opinion. He wrote, the Chief Justice wrote, the majority opinion, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, holding that Obamacare, the individual mandate, and the shared responsibility payment was a constitutional exercise of Congress's tax power. Thus, Obamacare was saved. Despite the program being sold as not a tax, the taxing power saved it. Of course, there is a taxing power. The very first line of Article 1, Section 8 says, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes. So taxing, enumerated power, no argument. O'Connor continues quoting that NFIB decision by Chief Justice Roberts. He said, the shared responsibility payment merely imposes a tax citizens may lawfully choose to pay in lieu of buying health insurance. Congress called it a shared responsibility payment because that's not a tax, right? They wanted to use another word. So it wasn't a tax until it was a tax. But it's exactly the same thing. They're just polishing the crap and saying it's not crap. So the argument in NFIB was that we aren't compelling you to buy insurance because we can't compel you to buy insurance under the Commerce Clause now that that's been rejected. So we're merely giving you a choice. Buy health insurance or pay this tax. And the Supreme Court found that okay. O'Connor continued in this most recent district court case. He said, on these bases, the Supreme Court held the federal government does have the power to impose a tax on those without health insurance. Obamacare is therefore constitutional because it can reasonably be read as a tax. But now the option of paying that tax is no longer available because there is no tax. More accurately, the penalty for failing to buy health insurance, the tax, is gone. So the constitutional authority, which was found by the Supreme Court in the NFIB case, is gone. It no longer exists. So the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, can no longer be constitutional. This isn't rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's not even putting together an IKEA bookshelf. O'Connor next discusses the joint dissent in NFIB. That was four of the justices, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. They, quote, agreed with the chief justice that the individual mandate exceeds Congress's powers under the interstate commerce and necessary and proper clauses, but they concluded that provision could not be characterized as a tax. That's why they dissented. They said this isn't a tax. But don't even get me started on the necessary and proper clause. We'll leave that historical revision for another day. So we've got the four dissenting justices who said it wasn't a tax. The next issue they, that O'Connor has to decide, and they had to, well, they didn't have to decide in NFIB in the Supreme Court case because they didn't get to it. They said the whole thing is okay because it's taxing power. But now that taxing is gone, O'Connor's like, okay, well, that, we can't do the individual mandate anymore because it's no longer supported by a tax. So now does the whole thing, the all of Obamacare and all of its provisions about pre-existing conditions and being on your health and parents' health insurance to your 26 or whatever, does all of it have to fall? That's called severability. Can we sever the unconstitutional part and leave the rest? And that can be a very boring legal topic, but I think this part of it is important. Back to the joint dissent. O'Connor says, the joint dissenters concluded the individual mandate and the Medicaid expansion were unconstitutional. They, and only they, these four, addressed whether all other provisions of the act must fall as well. Because they're the only ones that found the whole thing unconstitutional. And they're in the dissent, so they didn't win. But they're the only ones that found the individual mandate tax 
to be unconstitutional under any ground. So then they went on to say, well, is the whole thing got to fall too? They went on and did the severability analysis in their dissent. And so O'Connor's looking to that now because it was four of them and nobody, the, the majority didn't have to get to it. But now he has to get to it because he said reasonably that the tax is gone. Therefore, it is unconstitutional. So now what do we do? Do we have to throw the whole thing out? And the four Supreme Court justices, you only need one more, right? The four in the NFIB case, said that you have to throw the whole thing out. So O'Connor basically agrees with those four, and we don't know what the other five are going to do. Roberts might agree with him on this, on the severability issue. So who were those four dissenters? Two of them are gone, but they both were replaced. Kennedy's gone, replaced by Kavanaugh. Scalia's gone, replaced by Gorsuch. They may or may not reach that same conclusion. They may not agree with the severability finding of the original dissenters. We don't know. But if they do agree with it, maybe we'll get Roberts. Maybe we'll even get more. Maybe the majority, maybe it'll be 9-0. And they go, yeah, you know what? We said this was legit because of the taxing power. There's no more tax. Therefore, it's not legit. The whole thing's got to go. I would be surprised if that happened, but it's within the realm of possibility. And again, even if O'Connor's decision is eventually overturned at some level, it's a perfectly reasonable opinion, despite what these political hacks and commentators have said, most of whom I assert, again, haven't read it. O'Connor goes on. He says, the courts, which is him, the court's analysis involves three separate inquiries and conclusions. First, the court finds the parties satisfy the applicable standing requirements. Standing's boring. We're not going to get into it. Second, the court finds the individual mandate can no longer be fairly read as an exercise of Congress's tax power and is still impermissible under the Interstate Commerce Clause, meaning the individual mandate is unconstitutional. Third, the court finds the individual mandate is essential to and inseverable from the remainder of the ACA. And that means the whole thing has to fail. He's got a few more good quotes in this. The court, him, must determine whether the Constitution grants Congress powers it now asserts, but which many states and individuals believe it does not possess. He's quoting the original NFIB case, the Supreme Court in that one. He goes on, This means respect for Congress's policy judgments can never extend so far as to disavow restraints on federal power that the Constitution carefully constructed. Again, he's quoting NFIB. And they say it a lot, but they usually just ignore it. O'Connor continues, The particular circumstances of the moment may render a measure more or less wise, but cannot render it more or less constitutional. So O'Connor is quoting the NFIB case there, which is quoting Chief Justice John Marshall, which again is great. Absolutely true and almost completely ignored in Congress and in the federal government in general. All right, O'Connor goes on. He frames the question thusly. The question of constitutionality is straightforward. Is the individual mandate a constitutional exercise of Congress's enumerated powers when the shared responsibility payment is zero? Goes back to the NFIB case. The Supreme Court there said, our precedent demonstrates that Congress had the power to impose the exaction, which is a tax, in Obamacare under the taxing power, and that it need not be read to do more than impose a tax. That is sufficient to sustain it. Okay, that sustenance is no longer there. On the tax issue, O'Connor concludes, he says, under the law as it now stands, the individual mandate no longer triggers a tax. So long as the shared responsibility payment is zero, the saving construction articulated in NFIB is inapplicable and the individual mandate cannot be upheld under Congress's tax power. Congress's authority under the taxing power is limited to requiring an individual to pay money into the federal treasury. No more. Now, this really gets me because it's no longer a tax. The intervener defendants, led by California, they argued that the mandate is now sustainable under the Interstate Commerce Clause. I, I would be embarrassed to make that argument. The Supreme Court ruled no. They already ruled that in NFIB. Nothing has changed in the interim that would affect that conclusion. Man, some lawyers are just prostitutes. Pay them money, they'll do whatever you tell them to. Back to the severability issue. So California and the other interveners argue, and this is a legitimate argument. They say, all right, so even if the individual mandate is no longer legit because it no longer triggers the tax, 
the rest of Obamacare is still cool. It can be severed. So the unconstitutional part, the individual mandate, can be severed from all the rest of it. O'Connor discusses this for a couple of pages, and this is one possible outcome. Like I said, the Supreme Court, if it gets there, could say this. Okay, the individual mandate is unconstitutional, but the rest of it stays. But O'Connor says, applying these standards, the court, him, finds the 2010 Congress expressed through plain text an unambiguous intent that the individual mandate could not be severed from the ACA. Supreme Court precedent supports that finding. Later, in bolstering his conclusion, O'Connor says, Congress stated three separate times in the bill that the individual mandate is essential to the ACA. Thirteen different times, Congress explained how the individual mandate stood as the keystone of the ACA. Now, a keystone is the part of the arch that keeps it together. When you're building a wood, uh, when you're building a stone arch, you gotta have that keystone as the final part. That makes it work. Without it, it fails. So that's what he's saying. Without the individual mandate, the whole thing fails. In some, he continues, the individual mandate is so interwoven with the ACA's regulations that they cannot be separated. None of them can stand. And there you have it. Obamacare was upheld by the Supreme Court because it was a tax. The regulation of interstate commerce authority was specifically rejected. Only the power to tax saved it. Now the tax is gone. Therefore, the whole thing is no longer constitutionally authorized and it fails. Of course, nothing's going to change until the higher courts have their say about it. And what I, I hope they will uphold Judge O'Connor's perfectly reasonable and correct decision. So now you know what to say when you hear someone declare that the Supreme Court already ruled on Obamacare and this judge is crazy. This Texas Bush judge is crazy. He can't overrule the Supreme Court. Well, he's not. You can tell that person that Obamacare was found to be constitutional only under Congress's power to tax and that tax is gone now. So ask them what constitutional authority now exists to save Obamacare. Watch their eyes glaze over. They're not going to have any idea what you're talking about. You can be like a fungo bat talking to a Martian. Use it as a teaching moment. That's what all of this is about. Learning, teaching, spreading the gospel of what the Constitution actually says and respecting it, not acting as if it is some hurdle to overcome by twisting its words and ignoring it whenever you can. Don't let them get away with it. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 17, Texas versus the United States. We are brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holla at me with your comments. Twitter at BlueCarp. Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.